You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. to Ono Lit Class, the podcast that read from the pages of the Necronomicon and now can't get Bruce Campbell to leave the house. Or the demons that also got summoned, but Bruce Campbell specifically keeps going through the fridge and leaving the TV on and, and frankly is a worse house guest than the demons. Looking good, Bruce. Thanks. That's what he sounds like. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And that's Bruce. <laughs> that is Bruce. Friend of the show, Bruce Campbell. So, RJ, I, I think it might be time to play a certain seminal 1976 classic by none other than the Irish hard rock band Thin Lizzy. You know why? Why? Because. Who's the second boy? In fact, who's the first boy? <laughs> all the fun out of out of everything we do huh yeah we're back we're, we're back we're back in town in podcast town i'm a man school debatable school is back in session and so are we here at oh no lit class we're... wait i've had this dream <laughs> school started and i haven't been yet no you haven't been to any of your classes and there's a project due bruce <laughs> let's get on this guy Okay. It's just an uncanny Bruce Campbell. Um, we're back. Wasn't in, he Elvis? Yeah, in uh, Bubba Hotep, yes. Bruce! That's really not the role that people... Bruce, I'm going to bring you for show and tell. You're going to dress up <laughs> as Elvis. generally associate him with the evil dead, but sure. Oh, you might be better than ever, uh, depending on how this episode goes, and whether or not we can remember how to do a podcast so far. If this is any indication... I'm Megan. Uh, it's not gonna be great. <laughs> but so today we are tackling a good old rip roaring adventure novel of danger on the high seas. Revisiting Ono Class alum Robert Louis Stevenson, who we previously covered on our episode on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And it's it's strangely appropriate because I I feel something coming over me, RJ. Like a different personality is taking over. A vast. On this episode, we be talking about the mother of all seafaring tales, Treasure Island. Hey, RJ, you know why this here podcast has an explicit tag on it? You gotta say my name correctly. RJ, do you know why our podcast has an explicit tag on it? Porque? Because it's rated R. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Shut up. We're going to go see Dora tomorrow. We are. We're going to see Dora the Explorer. I'm more excited for that. <laughs> than what? The, the return? Than pirates. The, <laughs> you should be excited about pirates. Pirates are, are great. Dora speaks more to me as okay. a man. Well, speaking of... No, you know what? We're not going to explore that. Speaking of what resonates with you and whether or not it's pirates, did you read Treasure Island in school? No. Nope. <laughs> Of course not. Why would you have? Might have watched Dora. How much is Dora going to factor into this? Well, we started the episode none, but... <laughs> God. 
So I did not read Treasure Island actually until graduate school. Even even though Muppet Treasure Island was one of my favorite childhood movies growing up, but we'll, we'll get more on that later. Read it in graduate school in a summer class appropriately called Victorian Adventure Fiction, which I probably mentioned in our episode on Lord of the Flies, because that's also when I read The Coral Island, aka the book that that book is viciously railing against. Just go back and listen to our, our old episodes. So I was already like in, in my 20s and full of like critical reasoning and shit. And I also had a very specific image in my head of just what kind of characters I was going to be dealing with, specifically in the case of Mr. Long, John Silver, because even if I hadn't read the book, I'd seen like, I don't know, a billion different adaptations and versions of the story and character. And I'm going to go into that more later after we give the general summary of the the novel and how we've sort of just been adapting the 1950s Disney movie. We'll get there. I I did a presentation for it in school and I am going to repurpose that shit. But first... I know we already covered Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, biography in our episode on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but what what do you have for us today? So Robert Louis Stevenson, a.k.a. Bobby Louis Stevie. Yep. Born November 13th, 1850, died December 3rd, 1894. Currently, he is the 26th most translated author in the history of all authors, right behind such luminaries as Danielle Steele, Nora Roberts, and Pope John Paul II. Fine company. Yeah, all authors, I think, are worth covering, but Megan refuses to discuss on our show. You have definitely never asked me to cover Danielle Steele. Don't even lie. Megan says those authors are not worthy of being included in this ivory tower that is Oh No Lit Class. I will have definitely remembered if you'd brought up a pope. You want you want to talk about pirates, please? Yeah, that might be pirates in a Danielle Steele book or a Nora Roberts book. There probably is. I don't know what Pope John Paul got up to back in his day. But... I, I don't I don't think he was probably not writing about pirate adventure, but I would bet there, there's a pirate adventure somewhere in, in the oeuvre of Nora Roberts and Danielle Steele. I, I think know, that's fair. That Pope smock, not that unlike a captain's jacket. No. You find good, some red good, on there. Have, have you seen the Cardinals? They got the color scheme down, black and red. <laughs> anyway, Bobby Louie was a man of travel and illness. Go back, listen to our episode on the curious case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to hear all about it. In short, he was a Scottish boy, born in Edinburgh? Edinburgh. 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 Wrote some good shit and became accepted as the modern-day Moana by Samoans before dying and being buried by said Samoans in a primo spot overlooking the ocean. And the Samoans still mourn his death in poetry and song to this day. It's true. You can go listen to it. Does he remind you of Moana? Yes. He was big on the sea. He was big on the sea. Allow me to get personal for a moment. Oh, God. No one mourned the passing of RJ1 and RJ2 in meter or rhyme when they passed. Not even me, RJ the third. We're digging deep into Ono Litklaas lore with this one. So you know, Bobby Louie was big timing. As for Treasure Island, it began to take shape in Bobby's early 30s. By this time in his life, he was traveling far and wide, trying to find a home that agreed with his many ailments. He said at this time, I quote, I have so many things to make life sweet for me. It seems a pity I cannot have that other one thing, health. But though you will be angry to hear it, I believe, for myself at least, what is, is best. He tried living in different places in the UK, in America, and in the Pacific. No place had worked for him quite yet. When Bobby first sat down to piece the novel together, he had a few things to work off of. One, he had recently returned to the UK from America after a failed attempt to reside there permanently. His trip could be summarized in two words, 
illness, and poverty. <laughs> Always a fun time. Yeah, I guess the sense of wonderment and exploration were fleeting as his own personal voyage had ended. He sat down with his stepson, Lloyd Osborne, so extra, and came up with an imaginary map of an island. An island that became known as Treasure Island. Say it like a pirate. Treasure Island. We. A, a French pirate? Oui, oui. Yeah, yeah. We look for the booty. Oh, Jesus. Because we have that? the ennui. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> What's wrong with the name Lloyd Osborne? So extra. It's just a name. <laughs> Hi, guys. My name's Lloyd Osborne. Yes, yes. Lloyd I mean, was Osborne. Osborne his last name? I don't know. <laughs> I think it was all one name. Bruce Campbell, did you come back in here? <laughs> Now, the duo originally came up with a name for the story, which left a lot of questions. The Sea Cook, a story for boys. <laughs> the name did not stick. I'm glad they figured out something better. Yeah, the name did not stick, but boy, oh boy, what a name indeed. Bobby Lou said of the tale, quote, It was to be a story for boys, no need of psychology or fine writing, and I had a boy at hand to be a touchstone. Women were excluded. And then I had an idea for Long John Silver, from which I promised myself funds of entertainment, to take an admired friend of mine, to deprive him of all his finer qualities and higher graces of temperament, and to leave him with nothing but his strength, his courage, his quickness, and his magnificent geniality. But I do like this. It's a story for boys. No psychology or fine writing. I, I do like that. Yeah, it's a story for boys. I don't gotta try real hard. And also, I'm gonna base the main character off a friend of mine, but he's gonna be more of a bad person. The Sea Cook. A story for boys. Ah! <laughs> Hardcore, man. <laughs> the friend he mentions is one William Ernest Henley, a contemporary writer and poet of Bobby's. His best known poem is Invictus, like the one old man Clint Eastwood borrows from in his film of the same name. Mr. Henley was one-legged and suffered just as many battles with illnesses as Bobby. You know what they say. Hospital roomies are your best friends in life. Lloyd Osborne, the stepson, said of Henley, he was a great, glowing, massive-shouldered fellow with a big red beard and a crutch, jovial, outstandingly clever, and with a laugh that rolled like music. He had an unimaginable fire and vitality. He swept one off one's feet. Sounds sexy. And then we take all the good stuff away. <laughs> we leave the fact that he has one leg. In a letter Bobby wrote after publishing Treasure Island, he told Henley, I will now make a confession. It was the sight of your maimed strength and masterfulness that begot Long John Silver. The idea of the maimed man, ruling and dreaded, was entirely taken from you. I just didn't have the balls to tell you till I published the book. Uh, no mention of royalties or anything like that. <laughs> Now, interestingly, while Henley was the inspiration for Long John Silver, his daughter may have bested him. His daughter, Wendy, was the inspiration for Wendy in the J.M. Barry story focused on some tight-wearing, nubile young gent named Peter Pan and his female pal named Wendy. And that, uh, that story actually also references Treasure Island because uh, Long John Silver is supposed to be the only man that Captain Hook is afraid of. Rightfully so. Mm-hmm. Wendy's dad. <laughs> wow. Yep, makes sense. Bobby wrote 15 chapters of Treasure Island in a mere 15 days. A man of symmetry. When the story was originally published, it was published under its full name, Treasure Island, or the Mutiny of the Hispaniola. 
A book for boys. That wasn't part of it. I know. It was serialized in the magazine Young Folks, which was obviously for old farts, in 1881 before before it was published in book form in 1883. I like it. It's called Young Folks. Yeah. I bet you it was read by old people. Well, I mean, how many people reading Seventeen magazine are, in fact, Seventeen? Case in point. Even though the book was aimed at young boys to try and give them a sense of adventure, some of the biggest fans of the novel were actually much older. William Gladstone. He was 72 at the time. He was in the middle of a 26-year run as a British Prime Minister, and he was one of the biggest fans of the novel. There you go. You got a 72-year-old British Prime Minister reading young folks. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, you know, it's like uh, Harry Potter. It's kids' books. Literally everybody's reading them. So this makes a bit more sense when you contextualize what was going on in the literary world in the 18th and 19th centuries. So we could see Treasure Island as a bit of a culmination of a century of works. There were a couple of themes that dominated seafaring stories of the century. First was the classic navy yarn. In these stories, a skilled and adventurous man of seafaring life went through an action movie of plot while living through historical and realistic settings, kicking ass the entire time. The other big kind of story was the desert island romance. An attractive, grizzled, white man shipwrecked on an island all alone, maybe with a volleyball, trying to make it the best way he can in this new world while fighting off treasure-hungry pirates or flesh-hungry natives. A lot of this had to do with the Brits wanting to explore the idea of the noble savage. And also wanting to explore the idea of exploring and conquering everything. The idea that maybe industrialization was kind of bad. And those backwards, underdeveloped folk were actually maybe more advanced than the Brits in some ways. But, you know, not really. Lol. Because they're brown and such. Yep. (laughs) Think of Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. That is what I thought of. Yeah. In which there were footprints in the sand. What? That's the only thing I remember of that story. I, oh, I just know that the, the, there's a native living on the island and Robinson Crusoe decides to name him Friday because, you know, it's not like the guy has a fucking name. It's like, I don't speak your language. Your name's Friday. There's also things like S.H. Burney's The Shipwreck in 1816, Sir Walter Scott's The Pirate in 1822, and James Fenimore Cooper's The Pilot in 1823. What Treasure Island did in part was take all these works, combine them, and make the best use of all their best parts. It was basically the 1800 version of Avengers Endgame, or Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2. Yeah, fair. The culmination of the best. The novel was originally published under the pseudonym of Captain George North. As Bobby Lou hadn't really made it as an author quite yet, Jico and Hyde was still a few years off, and who better to read a story about the high seas than an actual real-life captain? While the events of Treasure Island are fictionalized, and given only a broad time frame sometime in the 18th century, Bobby does mention real-life pirates. William the Kid, Blackbeard, Edward England, Howell Davis, and Bartholomew Roberts. One interesting thing about pirates, when you research them, you find that people list their active years like sports ball athletes. Oh, I love it. For example, Blackbeard was active from 1716 to 1718. Only two years, but what a dominant two years, as we still talk about him 300 years later. Hell of a two years. I know. Damn. Speaking of pirates, before we turn it over to Megan for the summary of the tale, we need to pause here for this week's business theming with RJ, 
A financing with RJ Special. <laughs> Pirates. Villains, or more specifically, the use of them to base your business on, is an interesting strategy. Enter Long John Silver's restaurant. I was waiting for this. Basically, they're saying, hey, that dude was greedy, a bit of a scumbag, but damn it, he was one hell of a cook. On that, everybody does agree. The first restaurant bearing the name was founded in 1969, the same year that man landed on the moon, when men still dreamed of great things. 69's the sex number. How far have we fallen? And it was founded in the most seafood place of all. Ohio. Ah, give you a hint. It was right next to that chicken place. Kentucky. Kentucky. <laughs> so when I think Kentucky, I think fish and chicken. <laughs> what gastrointestinal masterpieces can you get at one of these places? How about just fried batter? Yes, you can request the fried batter that floats off the seafood they fry throughout the day. All you need to do is just order some crunchies or crispies, and that is what they will give you. It's what Robert Louis Stevenson would have wanted. Delicious and nutritious. For boys! For boys! But why name a business after a villain? And then not even lean into it. Yeah, they really don't. I know, these restaurants are milk toast, Boring. Nondescript. Like if they had the, the cashiers yelling at you. Swashbuckling. That'd be better. God, those cashiers would want to kill themselves, though. However, imagine a Vader's Vapes, Iago Ice Cream, the White Witch Sandwich Shop, Sensual Satan Sex Shop. Wait, whoa, okay. That went to a weird place. Great villains that deserve shops of their own. Vader's Vapes, huh? Vader's Vapes. (laughs) I don't know what else you can go with V, man. I don't know. Although you, you picked a character who has trouble breathing to <laughs> apparently base a vape shop around. But good job. Well, I'm putting it all out there for my audience. These vapes are so good, that guy still abuses them. And maybe that's what he's doing in there. He's just hotboxing himself all the time. That's what he's doing. He's just hotboxing the mask. That's what he did on the volcano mountain with him and Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan had the high ground, Oh, guys. God damn it. Villains, in short, are underutilized. And more importantly, underutilized in a way that never lets people take advantage of their full potential. Imagine if Long John Silvers went all in on the gimmick. True to the novel depictions. Dishes named after plot points. Instead, fried batter that fell off a fish. (laughs) Put it that way. Mediocre. (laughs) That's all for this villaining it up business theming episode of Financing with RJ. Don't forget, you all are beautiful inside and out but not as beautiful as me. And with that, I turn this over to Megan, who will tell us the tale of the tale of Treasure Island. Hey everybody, it's Megan, and I hope you're enjoying the illustrious return of Ono Class. And if you're not, I'm sorry. I don't really know what to tell you. If I sound a little funky, which I feel like I say, I have to say kind of a lot because that's that's just kind of the life that I lead, it's that my microphone is, is situation setup is meant obviously to be sat down in front of, but I can't sit right now because m- my butt's bad. My butt is broken, and so I'm crouched in front of the microphone recording this like some kind of horrible goblin creature, and... I don't know, like, how that changes the, the voice, the thing, the energy that I'm bringing, because this is not very comfortable. Um, take care of your butts, kids. 
This is a, a special PSA. I know that RJ's usually the one who gives out the, the PSAs. This is a special PSA from Megan. Take care of your butts. Because not being able to sit makes life a lot more difficult. So before my butt went bad, <laughs> before my butt gave out on me, I was at Podcast Movement in Orlando. And it was really fun. It was amazing. And I met so many people and so many amazing shows, including Ben Franklin's World, Tabletop Potluck, The Literary Cat Cast, History is Gay, The Fluent Show, Horizontal with Lila, Latter-day Lesbians, Gender Stories, and Living on Earth, to name a few. Those are all really good shows. You should go look them up, check them out, and they're all hosted by very cool people. So yeah, that was cool. And so if you uh, learned about us at Podcast Movement and, and now you're listening, thank you so much for listening. And it's also brought to you in part by our wonderful, beautiful, amazing patrons who help keep the wheels on this hell bus rolling. And that includes some of our newest ones who joined while we were on our break, including Gaia Turtle, Rob, Jenna, Beth, and Jesse. Thank you so much for helping support the show. If you want to join us on our literary journey through the dark and unknown places of books, oh god, my knees are going to give out, um, you could do that at patreon.com slash class or by going to onalitclass.com. And uh, soon we're actually going to be rolling out other ways to help support us if, you know, the Patreon commitment ain't your thing, uh, but I'll get to that another time. For now, let's get back to the treasure islands. Fuck. Take care of your butts, y'all. So, obviously this book was significant impact. It was one of the first wave of books that were aimed at a younger demographic, as we have stressed. And also, Long John Silver is kind of the first thing people think of when they hear the word pirate, even if they don't know it because he literally is the classic pirate that most pirates in pop culture are based on. So the the impact is is kind of undeniable here. Anyway, ER without further ado, Treasure Island's timbers as they be shivered. Yar. So the novel opens with our pubescent teen hero and narrator Jim Hawkins saying that his compatriots from the adventure he's about to tell us about have asked him to write down said adventure and tell us about it. So he's doing that. He tells us it all began years ago at the Admiral Benbow, which is not a dude, but the name of an inn owned by his parents. One day, a ratty old sailor man who claims he's a captain shows up and decides to shack up there, singing shanties about dead men's chests and, I don't know, maybe whatever nipples or hair may be involved in them, uh, drinking rum, and generally just being loud, rude, and gross. He tells Jim he'll pay him money to keep an eye out for any one-legged dudes with accompanying foreshadowing, and hangs around even after he runs out of money, because Jim's dad is a spineless wuss who's afraid to kick the guy out, and is probably why this whole book is precipitated on Jim Hawkins desperately looking for a father figure he can imprint on like the baby duck he is. One of those potential future daddies is Dr. Livesey, Livesey? Yeah. Who comes to the inn to treat Jim's dad when he's sick. The captain is being obnoxious per usual and wants everyone to shut up and listen to him keep singing about dead men and their chests. Why not their backs, I ask. Or their feet. Shake things up, you know? Dr. Livesey ignores him and keeps chatting, pissing off the captain who tells him specifically to shut up, and Dr. Livesey says some approximation of like, oh, go drink yourself to death, you gross dickhead, to which the captain responds by threatening him with a knife. 
Dr. Livesey, however, is no Dr. Jekyll, by which I mean he's not a useless shit baby with a constitution made of wet construction paper. Dr. L, as we will see and is hinted here in the beginning, is a pretty stone-cold dude. He tells the captain that even if he does stab him, he'll hang for it, and there's a whole inn's worth of witnesses. The captain, who's held together solely by bluster and alcohol, backs down. To really drive it home, Dr. Livesey's even like, Bitch, you better behave even when I'm not here, because if I hear anyone complaining about you, I'll have you run out of town, because that's the thing I can do, apparently. Paging Dr. Daddy. Dr. Daddy here. (laughs) That's what he sounds like. Reporting. (laughs) Then one morning, another piratical-looking dude shows up who's missing two fingers. He finds Jim and says he's looking for a man named Bill and describes the captain staying at the inn. And Jim, sweet little innocent baby that he is, is like, well, I was supposed to watch out for a guy with one leg and this dude's got both of his, so I'm sure it's fine. And he tells him where to find the captain. Or maybe he just hates the captain and hopes he'll die. That's also a possibility. So the pirate dude, whose name is Black Dog, finds Bill, a.k.a. Billy Bones, and they have a sword fight. Billy Bones runs him off, but gets wounded and has a stroke and spends his days drinking even more and screaming about the black spot, which is some kind of evil pirate jury duty summons, along with something about the treasure chest and one-legged pirates, etc., etc. Meanwhile, Jim's lame biological dad dies of unspecified illness, and the day after they hold the funeral, a sketchy blind dude shows up, manages to put Jim in an arm lock, which is pretty sad, and demands to be taken to Billy Bones. Jim complies, and the blind guy hands him something, and then just leaves. The captain is in, like, 10 o'clock when he reads whatever the blind guy gave him, and he goes, that's in six hours, and then he falls down dead. There's a joke in here somewhere about deadlines, but I feel like it's not worth the effort to find it. Jim tells his mom what happened, and she's like, oh fuck, a bunch of pirates are probably gonna come kill us, we should get help. So they do, except no one wants to help them because they're all afraid of getting pirate murdered, so they leave this single mom and her child to fight off a gang of pirates. It's gonna be fine. They're gonna be great. I've been on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, that shit's real. They're gonna light you on fire. Chase you with berms and crap. Yep, all those things. They're and... going to sell your ass at auction. <laughs> Check out our larboard side. Oh, they scrapped that. That's not on the ride anymore. PC fucking 2019 oh, culture. Like you, like, you give a shit. Fat uh, people need representation, too. She was never fat. Yeah, that, that was a joke. Her larboard no, side. No, yeah, you just said show them your larboard side. She was big. No. She was a husky woman. No. Yes. Go back and look up pictures. She was not. It was just turn to show us, like, your, le- your starboard, your larboard. Your David Harbour. Hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. No. That's hey. not her. Yeah. That's her. No. The red one. I'm not sure. We want the redhead. Show her your larboard side. <laughs> I have read, I have been on that ride so many fucking times. That's so... Yeah, it's not that one. This one's a fucking pirate. Yeah, that's the change they made. They turned her into a pirate instead uh-huh. of a woman being auctioned, you fucking... <laughs> you're getting angry, and you don't even know what you're getting angry about. <laughs> All right. Anyway, Jim and his mom are like, well, we're probably going to die tonight, so let's go through the captain's personal belongings. Like, that'll be fun. But it's not, because all they find are some clothes, a compass, some coins, and a bunch of papers. They hear the sound of a blind man's stick tapping at the door, and so Jim just kind of scoops up everything, and they run for it and hide under a bridge. Jim and his mom listen as various pirates show up and trash the inn, then get into a fight with each other, because Billy Bones is already dead, and they're unable to find what it is they're looking for. They scuffle, try to run from the cops, and the blind pirate gets run over by horses. So overall, not a particularly competent pirate murder gang, which is gonna be a running theme here. So now Jim and his mom are left with a destroyed inn and some random papers. Jim decides to take the papers to Dr. Livesey, a.k.a. New Daddy, and finds him at the house of a nobleman named Squire Trelawney. 
Squire Trelawney as a character exists for two sole reasons. To have lots of money and be a staggeringly gullible idiot. That's it. The three of them open the papers and find an account that lists amounts of money written by Captain Flint, notorious fearsome pirate, and a treasure map. Trelawney is immediately like, oh shit, treasure hunting road trip lives you, me, and the kid, hell yeah. Dr. L's like, yeah, totally, but like, maybe don't yell about it. Seriously, let's not tell anyone so that we're not murdered by the pirates that we know are looking for this map. And Trelawney's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, the, th- the thing you just said. And he's already making matching Boat Buddies t-shirts for the three of them. And roughly 10 minutes later, is running around town like, hey, I need to charter a boat for my sick treasure hunting adventure with my new best friends. Just like a Disney vacay, man. <laughs> yeah, a Disney vacay where if you tell the truth about it, people want to kill you. So he gets his ship, but he can't find a crew until one day he's conveniently approached by a one-legged man who's like, Hey, I heard you're looking for a crew. I happen to have one of those. My name's Long John Silver, which in no way sounds like a pirate name. I am extremely trustworthy, and so you should fire whoever you've hired to be on your ship so far, because I bet they're crappy sailors. I know these things. You can trust me. I'm named after the clothing that New Englanders wear. Oh, yeah, long, the long long johns. Oh, My okay. johns are so long, man. <laughs> You've never seen johns as long as these. And Trelawney agrees that, that, yes, his johns are very long, and that Long John Silver definitely doesn't sound like a pirate name, and he should absolutely take him completely at his word and agree to hire this crew sight unseen because there's nothing suspicious about this situation whatsoever. Because Jim is a literal child, he also sees nothing wrong with this turn of events and is super hyped to go on an adventure and not run a sad inn. However, Stevenson does make sure to have Jim visit his mom before he leaves and reassure us that Trelawney is paid to have the inn repaired, and Jim's mom's excited for her son. But honestly, probably more excited to be a hot, single, property-owning lady who is presumably about to have a Victorian how Stella got her groove back. Which, unfortunately, we do not see, because this is a book for boys! Boys! <laughs> Boys, be boys. <laughs> Finally, the day before it's time to set sail, Trelawney gives Jim a note to deliver to Silver at the inn he owns. And it's time for Jim to meet potential dad number two, Electric Dadaloo, aka Dark Daddy, aka Bad Daditude. Jim gets to the inn and meets Silver for the first time, and he sees he's got one leg, and is briefly like, oh, shit, but also, Silver seems really cool. He's nice, and he's charming, and he cooks and owns a business, and, and that doesn't seem very piratey, so Jim figures he's probably fine, and not the one-legged man Billy Bones was so worried about. Until he sees that pirate from before, Black Dog, leaving the inn in a hurry, and is like, uh, that's an evil pirate man, and Silver's just like, whoa, shit, for real? A pirate? At my inn? Crazy. Wild. Never seen such a thing. Didn't even pay his bill. If I ever see him again, I'll definitely kill him, because pirates are bad. And after this, all three of the treasure hunting buddies, including Dr. Livesey, who doesn't have the excuse of being a small boy or a rich idiot, are like, yes, this Long John Silver is an honest fellow, and we all like and implicitly trust him. Then, the gang meets the captain of the ship they've chartered, a man named Smollett. Smollett, to put it mildly, has some issues with this whole voyage. Namely, he can immediately tell that the crew is entirely made of pirates and will probably mutiny and take over the ship at some point. His first mate, Mr. Arrow, is a drunk. Trelawney refuses to tell him where they're going, which seems like kind of an important thing for the captain of a fucking ship to know. Yeah. You go the way the wind blows, the way the stars shine, the way the water and its current feels on your testicles. I'm a wayfinder. Sitting in the sitting in balls out in the water doesn't make you a wayfinder. 
Uh, but what Smollett did learn from the crew, who seemed to know way more than him, is that they're on a treasure hunt, and that Trelawney keeps telling them things he probably shouldn't. And he's pretty certain that a doctor, a small boy, and a rich idiot are not qualified to run a treasure hunting voyage. I can see what's happening here. <laughs> We're gonna go on a ship and probably be killed by pirates. Yar. Yar, welcome. <laughs> Moana jokes, still just as fresh as they were, what, two years ago? And Trelawney. Hey, everybody. Be excited. Frozen 2 is coming out. So we're going to have a whole new slate of songs. We're not going to see Frozen 2. Frozen 2. Okay. And Trelawney's just like, this guy's a dickhead, and I don't like him. And in all fairness, Smollett is kind of a dickhead in the way that he talks and interacts with people, but he's also right. So, you know. Either way, they set sail. Things very quickly go wrong, as Mr. Arrow is drunk all the time and almost immediately falls overboard to his death. R.I.P. Mr. Arrow. We really didn't know you. We just knew you were drunk. The Smollett's like, I fucking told you so. And him and Trelawney basically become mortal enemies, with Trelawney giving the crew special goodies and shit all the time so they'll like him more. But the guy the crew really likes is Long John Silver. Hell, everyone likes Silver. He's super cool, and everyone respects him and listens to him more than anyone else on the ship. And Silver likes Jim. It starts teaching him things and telling him seafaring adventure stories and filling out adoption papers and all that sort of thing. Until one day... Jim goes to get an apple from the anti-scurvy apple barrel, and then decides to take a nap in the barrel, which, like, Jim, dude, gross, those, those apples are for everyone. Like, what the fuck? Also, how is that, like, comfortable? He's just sleeping in a barrel on some apples. He's a flexible boy. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, he's awoken by a conversation between Silver and a young crewman named Dick, who is apparently not a pirate. I thought you were going to say he was awoken by one of the apples pressing up against his sweet, sweet cheeks. <laughs> Why would I say that? What on earth would lead you to believe that would be the thing I would say? And then he learned he was interested in alternate sexual relations. Jim is like 14. A boy has an awakening, usually in that 12 to 13 age range. Yeah, Jim crawling into the apple barrel. I hope this doesn't awaken anything in me. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Too late now. The only way you could get off. He's one who's an apple and shoved in his face. Anyway, that's not what happens. He overhears Long John Silver trying to get a crewman named Dick to join his pirate gang for when they mutiny, saying that he knows that Dick's a smart kid and will choose the right side. Jim's initial reaction is not, oh no, Silver's a pirate, but... How? Erection. No, no, it does not. Yeah, he gets he gets a hard on hearing about pirate mutinies. Yeah. No. It what is, if pirate but sexy? <laughs> I hate you. No, he's, he's not surprised by the fact that Silver's a pirate, but that he's jealous that Silver's being nice to a kid that isn't him. Then this other crewman named Israel Hands walks in, and in case the reader was unclear that Long John and the crew are up to no good, literally says, "Hey, so like, when are we gonna mutiny? Because I hate Smollett and would very much like to stab him." And Silver tells him to be patient and not like their dumbass pirate compatriots who stormed Jim's parents in and got horse murdered for their troubles. Silver isn't any dumb pirate. He has ambition. He owns property and has a wife. He knows how to invest capital. Gosh darn it. He knows about financing with RJ. Before Jim has time to process this new information, someone screams Land Ho and they've reached Treasure Island. In the midst of all the activity, Jim finds Dr. L, Smollett, and Trelawney and tells them of the impending mutiny and Trelawney's like, Oops, my bad. And the gang figures out they still have some time to form a plan to not die and figure out who might still be loyal to them before the actual search for the treasure begins. Jim, 
who can do basic math, is not optimistic about the chances of a doctor, a small boy, a soft, wealthy idiot, and his several servants, and one competent captain against something like 20 hardened, murdering pirates. Silver is barely managing to keep the crew from flipping into mutiny mode, and Smollett gets them all off the ship by being like, hey, boat work's done for the day, go explore the island, go drink, I don't care. And Jim sneaks along as well. He overhears Silver talking to another crew member named Tom, trying to get him to side with the pirates as well, but Tom refuses, and so Silver stabs him to death, then blows a whistle that signals it's mutiny time. Jim faints at the sight of Boat Daddy becoming Murder Daddy, and then wakes up and runs away. Jim runs through the island, which is a shitty, marshy, mosquito-riddled hell swamp, and eventually meets Ben Gunn, who has been stuck on the island for three years, living castaway style. Except he, he didn't even have a volleyball to call his own. He begs Jim for cheese, and also not to hurt him. Like, that's, that's his biggest thing, is he's been missing the hell out of cheese. Which, that's a mood. Cheese is important. Yeah, if I was on an island, I would also miss cheese. He tells Jim that he, along with Silver and Billy Bones, were part of Flint's crew when he buried the treasure on the island, but that they didn't know where on the island he buried it, because he murdered all the pirates who actually helped bury it, somehow. Which is, like, six dudes. We, we don't know how he did that, but he, he did. Arsenic. <laughs> okay polonium yeah very russian yep but anyway ben ended up on the island when he was sailing on a different ship and was like whoa hey i know that island it's got treasure on it let's go look for it and they did for 12 days after which the entire crew got really fucking annoyed and left ben on the island for wasting their time and also just being really irritating in general they were just like fuck you live on this island now he promises to help jim and the gang for some money and safe passage home and also cheese at this point, Dr. Livesey takes over the narrative to fill the reader in on what was going on while Jim was watching people get murdered and meeting feral island men. In short, he, Smollett, and Trelawney heard the sounds of murder on the island, and along with a couple crewmen who weren't pirates, managed to capture the few pirates that didn't go ashore and force them below decks before dumping extra ammunition overboard so the pirates can't use it and fleeing the ship for the island. Except they're met with gunfire, and one of Trelawney's servants dies, and eventually they make it to a fort to hole up in. And Dr. L informs Smollett that no one is going to come looking for the ship for several months, so they're kind of fucked. Dr. L wonders if Jim is dead, and on cue, Jim sneaks into the fort and takes back over narrating. He tells them about Ben, and the best plan everyone could come up with is, try to kill enough pirates that maybe they'll just leave us alone. Which isn't a great plan, but before they're first to fight, Long John Silver appears waving a white truce flag. See, they're French. Because <laughs> they're already surrendering. Yep. Yeah. Apparently someone murdered one of the pirates during the night. Jim figures this was Ben's handiwork. And Silver wants to make a truce saying that if they hand over the map and stop shooting at them, Silver will either let them stay aboard the ship and be dumped safely somewhere or be given supplies and left on the island to wait for help. Smollett says, hmm, okay, cool. Counter offer. You surrender and we chain everyone up and take you back to England to go to jail. The truce does not happen. Instead, they all have a shootout followed by a sword fight and they actually managed to kill a bunch of pirates while only losing one of their crew members, evening the odds up a bit. Captain Smollett is injured, though. Dr. L leaves to find Ben, and Jim, restless and full of dumb boy energy, grabs a gun and sneaks out. He wanders the beach, sees the ship, and decides it would be a good idea to cut the anchor and let the ship float away, stranding everyone. I'm not 100% sure what his thought process is on this. I agree. With? Oh, but... You're not listening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, he steals a small boat that's apparently Ben Gunn's that he's been building to escape, I guess, because fuck that guy, right? And he sails out to the ship and does the thing before getting swept out into the current, sinking the boat, and barely escaping drowning by getting on board the ship. You know, the one that's floating out to sea and has Israel hands and several other drunk and pissed off pirates on it. Whoops. Oopsie doopsie. Oopsie doopsie pirate time. 
Lucky for him, the pirates turn on each other and kill each other. Except for Israel, who's still super wounded. And Jim pops up and is like, look at me. I am the captain now. And forces Israel to help him sail a ship back to the island. You know, the opposite of the thing he paddled out to do. So we've just essentially been killing time. But hey, Jim's a ship captain now, technically. So that's kind of cool. They get the ship back to the island, and Israel tries to kill Jim with a knife, and Jim shoots him to death and commits Baby's first murder. He sneaks back to the fort, only to discover Silver's there waiting for him, as it was taken over by pirates while he was off screwing around on various boats. Silver says there's no point in Jim trying to run away and find his friends, because the good doctor and co. probably think Jim has betrayed them by leaving. Gotcha. <laughs> he then tells Jim that his friends ditched the fort when the pirates were all getting drunk, because that's like 90% of what the pirates do on the fucking island. Jim, who thinks he's going to be killed now, figures he may as well go out gloating, tells the pirates that he's the one who discovered the mutiny plan in the first place. The other pirates do in fact want to kill him, especially now, but Silver doesn't let them and is like, I'm the captain, fight me bitch, and no one does, but they all grumble and it becomes clear that Silver's about to be dealing with his own mutiny. He whispers to Jim that he'll try to protect him from the other pirates because Pirate Dad isn't a total bastard after all. We'll get in your barrel of apples together, boy. We'll ride that apple barrel to freedom. Oh, it seems like you're in a tight spot. Almost a spot as tight as a barrel of apples. Oh, God damn it. Well, however, tight, tight though that spot may be, Silver manages to talk his way There's out of... sustenance. He manages to talk his way out of their current predicament and blames everything that's going wrong on the others wanting to mutiny too early and points out that Jim is much more useful alive as a hostage. Then Dr. L comes back with a truce flag. People are just surrendering all over the place. Uh, he's actually there to help treat the injured pirates because he's a doctor, goddammit. And apparently just has balls of steel knowing they could murder him anytime they want. But he's a doctor and that's what doctors do. Silver lets him see Jim and tells Livesey that he saved Jim at great personal risk and so they should help him not die and let Jim testify on his behalf back in England. So maybe less good-hearted pirate dad and more calculated act of decency pirate dad. Oh well. Dr. Dad, meanwhile, scolds Jim for running away until Jim, who's already a hostage and thinks he's going to die, starts crying. So no one's winning Father of the Year right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, nope, we get it. That's, that's really bad sounds. Lucy feels bad, though, and promises that he and the others will get Jim out of there. He then goes back to Silver and warns him not to go looking for the treasure, to which Silver responds that, no, he's gonna, because he needs the treasure as a bargaining chip or the other pirates will kill him and Jim. Then Livesey runs off into the forest. The pirates go looking for the treasure, with Jim tied to Silver in what is essentially a child leash. They find a skeleton pointing the way, and all reminisce on how that is so on-brand for Captain Flint, when they hear a voice screaming Flint's last words from the woods, and all freak out that it's Flint's ghost and they're going to die. Long John, however, is like, the voice has an echo, and that means it's a person, you stupid drunk idiots. Also, that's not even Flint's voice, for fuck's sake, it's, it's Ben Gunn. Can you not tell the difference? This is my favorite thing, because the other pirates immediately stop panicking and are just like, oh, Ben Gunn? Fuck him, whatever. On with the treasure hunt. Like, they don't even feel the need to explore the situation further. They're just like, it's just Ben Gunn. Man, he's the worst. Anywho, let's go get some treasure. <laughs> Which they will learn to regret. So, here's the problem, though. They find where the treasure's buried, but it's all been dug up and is gone. The pirates are understandably upset about this, and Silver gives Jim a gun and is like, well, we're gonna die, kid. But then Dr. Livesey, Ben Gunn, and another random crew person whose name I can't be bothered to remember swoop in, shoot a bunch of pirates, and save the day. Because it turns out, Ben found the treasure and dug it up months ago. So, like, ha-ha, Ben Gunn got the last laugh, except 
No, which I'll go into in a second. And doctors know where the kill shots are. It's true. So they take Silver back to Ben's cave, which is filled with gold. And Trelawney's like, you are a bad man, Long John Silver. And Silver's just like, uh, yeah, obviously. And Smollett says he's glad that Jim's alive, but hopes he doesn't take it personally that he never wants to sail with him ever again. They all get back to the beach ship, fill it with gold, and set sail to Spanish America, which I think is supposed to be like Central America, to get a new crew and head back home. As soon as they make port, Silver escapes in the night with a bag of treasure, and everyone is so glad to be rid of him that they don't even really care. They're just glad he's gone. We're told that they make it back safely, Smollett retires because fuck the ocean, Ben Gunn gets his money but manages to piss it away in less than a month, presumably on artisan cheeses, and Jim never hears of Pirate Dad ever again, and is perfectly fine with that because no more adventures, please and thank you. The end. And that there be the tale of Treasure Island, me hearties. Yarr. Yargi. The fuck was that? Yargi. What kind? No, what kind of pirate says Yargi? Yargi. That's not a thing. Ennui. <laughs> I, I'm gonna make you walk the plank because I hate you so much. Yarr. Have a plank's constant. I don't know what Planck's constant is. Is it because you're uneducated? Because you're a pirate. Is it how I should be constantly planking for my abs? Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. I'm not gonna fact check that. RJ, uh, tip here, fitness tip. If you can plank for sixty seconds, pretty good. Go for two minutes. What kind of fucking fitness tip is that? Hey, can you plank for a minute? Dope. Try two. <laughs> yeah. If you can do that, start adding a weight vest. Okay. Diminishing returns after two minutes. Ah. Okay. Thank you, fitness counselor RJ. So in terms of adaptations, this shit is just lousy with sequels and prequels and adaptations and all kinds of things. It's one of the most adapted things. I know we say that a lot, but well, these are classic works of literature, so and they're really more than they're really really fucking old. So there's been time for them to be adapted a million times. People really like writing their own prequels and sequels involving the prior and further adventures of John Silver, which. Call it what it is, that's fan fiction. It's professional fan fiction, and there's nothing wrong with that, but let's not pretend it's somehow better than regular-ass fanfic. And probably usually way less sexy. But yeah, people love this shit, and they love making allusions and references and all that kind of stuff. And some of the adaptations are pretty wild, like the 1978 anime adaptation, where Jim has a pet baby leopard for some reason. The biggest and most influential adaptation is Disney's live-action film adaptation in 1950. It was actually their first live-action film ever, starring Robert Newton as Long John Silver and providing the template for nearly all future adaptations, as well as kind of how we view pirates in media in general. Fucking Disney at it again, these assholes. Yup. All right, so um, I'm going to talk about some of the adaptations, and I'm about to get real weird with you guys, so I kind of need you to take a, a literary leap of faith with me because I'm going to start talking about literary theory. Can I get, like, a dun-dun-dun? Womp womp. That's, that's not what I wanted, but fine. <laughs> Don't worry, though. I'm pretty dumb and I hate lit theory, so this should be fairly easy to follow. Womp womp. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution. So the very, very short version, which uh, I'm sure you will help me fill in a bit, because I'm going to get stuff wrong, of the two theorists that I want to talk about. First, Walter Benjamin, who was a German philosopher and literary critic who wrote an essay called The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. The gist of which is that- It's about machines fucking man. Yup. 
it was all about machines reproducing and having machine babies. It's that you can never fully reproduce a piece of art because you cannot produce the time and space it was made in. And that the reproduced thing will lack a context, which is something we see in a lot of adaptations. But I did this project in school on Treasure Island, so that's why you get to hear about these specifically. The other theorist is French philosopher Jean Baudrillard, whose whole deal is about simulations and the idea of symbols replacing the thing they're meant to symbolize. Basically, for the intents and purposes of this episode, Baudrillard is here to tell us that when we reproduce a thing so many times, eventually we lose the original thing and the references to it, and are just reproducing a copy. So what that means here is that at some point, Treasure Island adaptations stopped adapting the actual novel, and mostly just adapted the 1950 movie, including not only a kinder, cuddlier John Silver, but also a major plot change at the end, where Jim catches Silver trying to run off with the treasure at the very end, and Silver has like the chance to kill Jim in order to escape, but he can't bring himself to do it, because he cares about him so much. Like, that gets put into subsequent adaptations, even though it's not in the book, that Silver just fucks off at the end. So this 1950 movie is, apart from that kind of stuff, mostly faithful to the original story, although Jim's parents are just completely not in it because they get in the way of Pirate Dad. Robert Newton, who played Silver, is oftentimes credited with creating that arr pirate voice and vernacular that is standard in popular culture today, but you know, that's like, your mileage may vary. His rendition was so popular that they ended up making a sequel where Silver becomes the hero and rescues a kidnapped Jim Hawkins, and then they gave him his own television series that followed him on his adventures. So they couldn't handle bastard Silver, and they, they had to make him, you know, more commodifiable. But the other important thing to mention, you kind of snuck it in there, is this was right around the time people were putting TVs in their homes, and so this was one of the few... TV shows that existed and it was popular and that's really probably where it really started to take over. That's true. Probably more so than the movie. Right. The, the movie got the TV show, which yeah. is what makes the movie important, but it's a TV show that was exposed to more people and more people responded to. It is a reason I keep you around. So of the other uh, Treasure Island adaptations I want to talk about, Muppet Treasure Island, which I know many people claim that a Muppet Christmas Carol is the best Muppet-based adaptation of classic literature but this one was my favorite it's the one i grew up with also tim curry is long john silver and it's it's great and there are muppets ben gunn is miss piggy now she's benjamina gunn she's in a love triangle with kermit the kermit captain smollett and long john silver which means that for a good portion of the movie tim curry gets to act like he really wants to fuck a pig puppet <laughs> and that he in fact had prior Fucked the big puppet. So, let's pause here. <laughs> if one were to fuck a pig puppet, which orifice do you go for? You go for the the hole that the, the hand goes up in, obviously. All right. That's an easy one. Come on. So, obviously, this is a Muppet movie. Among the many changes, you know, you can't have Silver going around killing people. It's just a kid's movie. Although, this was a book for boys, and they still had lots of murder in it. Uh, and actually, Billy Connolly, who plays Billy Bones in the movie, uh, there's a quote from him where he was very tickled to be the first on-screen death in a Muppet movie. And I think he remains the only one. So that that happens. And then we get a real good one. In, in 2002, Disney gave Treasure Island a, another go with the film Treasure Planet, which many people will remember for having the main character voiced by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who was just going through his little adorable phase, and also the song by the Goo Goo Dolls, which, oh man, it's like peak 2002. I'm going 
take me and throw me away. Now nah, get to the chorus. Get to the good part. And I want a moment to be real. Wanna touch things I don't feel. Feel I belong. Imagine being 12 and just hearing that and being like, yup, that's it. That's the shit. So this it's version... No City of Angels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This version takes place in... The name of the song isn't City of Angels. <laughs> so it takes place in space and most of the characters are changed into aliens. The island is now a planet and Smollett is also now a, a, a cat lady and then Livesey's a dog man and they fall in love. In this version also, Jim's father has left the family rather than died, which is important. Because if Jim Hawkins had, like, a desperately seeking new daddy syndrome in the book, it's, like, dialed up to 11 in this version. And, in fact, Silver is way more sympathetic to the point where the movie had to invent a character, an evil spider alien named Mr. Scroop, which is a really great name. And he, uh, he kills Mr. Arrow, and he's, he's the actual bad guy, because Silver's just, like, a squishy cyborg man. Um, also, Ben Gunn's a robot, but they definitely preserve him being the most annoying by having him be voiced by Martin Short. Were his hands guns? No. But his name's Ben Gunn. Well, they didn't really think that through. Or his dick. And then the version that I like talking about the most is uh, released in 2012. It was a Sky TV miniseries adaptation, and it starred bald Eddie Izzard as Long John Silver, although they let him, they let him at least, you know, keep his eyeliner. Bald Eddie Izzard is really weird, though, just to look at. And then the only other, I think Donald Sutherland is in it as Captain Flint in, like, a flashback. And Elijah Wood is Ben Gunn. I think those are the only major people in it. So this was the, uh, it was meant to be, like, darker, edgier, sexier. And there are some pretty significant changes. Squire Trelawney is a bastard. Like, he's, he's stupid in the book, but he's still, like, a good dude. He fixes up the inn for Jim and his mom. He's not a bad guy. But in this version, he executes Mr. Arrow. He actively tries to evict Mrs. Hawkins from the inn instead of fixing it up. And uh, he tries to murder Jim and then dies diving off the ship for the treasure because they dump the treasure because it's tainted and evil. Also, in this version, Mrs. Hawkins and... Silver's wife, Miss, Mrs. Long John Silver, are given a full subplot where they're trying to, like, keep the inn and fight off Black Dog. And yeah, they dump, they dump the treasure. And Silver is uh, chained to the mast. No, not the mast. The wheel? Something. He's chained somewhere on the ship at one point, And he, he fights out of the, the chains to save Jim from being murdered by Squire Trelawney. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of wild. So even though he's still kind of murderous in this version, like, he's still made to be more palatable. His wife is, like, a full character, and there's scenes of him interacting with her to humanize him. And yeah, he defends Jim from being stabbed while he's in chains. So you, what you can basically talk about here is that the argument can be made that after this many adaptations, Silver's true character is just copies of the Robert Newton copy. And that's kind of where, like, the Baudrillard stuff comes in, that we're, we're not making copies of Treasure Island, the novel, anymore, that we've just kind of drifted so far off in space, we're copying copies. So this is like when I Xerox my lesson plans for 20 years in a row? Yes. And now it's just unintelligible lines? Yep. Squiggles? Pretty much, yeah. The Benjamin bit is that he states that reproduction cannot hope to capture the same cultural context. 
And so, like, differences will occur to compensate for current popular culture. You quoted Stevenson's thing about how he said, you know, it's a book for boys. Women were purposefully excluded, but in today's cultural context, there needs to be representation, so you have female characters added. You have entire subplots about Jim's mom, or Captain Smollett is a girl now. And then, then, you know, in, like, the 2012 version, we hate rich people now because they're bad, and so Squire Trelawney is a bad man. We like Silver. He's an anti-hero because we're into edgy anti-heroes now. So interesting questions to think about is like, which is something we've kind of talked about on the show, is should a work be viewed purely within its own space and time? Which we've said no to a lot. We apply modern critique pretty frequently. And other things are like, you know, what's more of a deviation from the original, do you think? This is partly rhetorical, partly a question that you can answer here. Uh, Which do you think is more of a deviation from the original? Setting the story in space or creating female characters? Look, let's all just say it's 2019 and the real bad person here is... Disney? The white man. Well, yes, the white man was the real bad person back then, too, but... So, like, by creating these characters or making other changes, are we compensating for outdated social norms, or are we just failing to recreate a work within its original context? Well, it was exciting for people to be on the high seas back then. Seas are boring at this point. Go on a fucking carnival cruise. Space. Space is where it's at. That's exciting. Space. Space is the place. Space Um, space is the pirates of the 21st century. As, as Tim Curry says in, I think, Command and Conquer, one of the FMVs, he, he has to go to the place, the one place no longer tainted by capitalism. Space! Although I will say, <laughs> the problem with space pirates is they're going to have to knock off the space cowboys who were there first. Yeah. Yeah. See a space cowboy. Tommy Wee Jones? No. <laughs> He was yeah. a space cowboy. No, no he, he was, was a space cowboy. Donald Sutherland? Yep, you got two down. Clint Eastwood? All right, one more to go. Uh, this is the one I don't think you're going to get. Tom Skerritt? No. Kevin Bacon? No, he's not as old as them. Morgan Freeman? No. Danny Glover? Nope. They, they, was, they did not have a token black guy in the space cowboys. Whoa. It is James Garner. The only thing I know him from is he voices the bad guy in... The film Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, space. More exciting. Space, space is the S- new high seas. Space! It's, it's really the eighth sea. <laughs> the eighth sea is space. It, it, that's how you pronounce it. Space. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> that's probably about going to do it for, for us here on this episode of Ono Lit Class. Hey, Megan. Yeah, You skipped a bit. Oh, fuck, I did. Shit. See, this has been so long. No, I, I'm there. I'm with it. Fine. Hey, RJ. RJ. Yeah. Hey, RJ. RJ. Treasure Island. So, Be it good or bad. Many doubloons. Out of? One. That there be deeply confusing. <laughs> Ten doubloons out of three. Why? Well, I might not be a boy. Yeah. I'm a boy, no, I'm a man. Well, I was they a... can take me and throw me away. Well, I might have been a skater boy when I was younger. I'm no longer a boy. And I didn't read this as a boy, but as a man, kind of like William Gladstone, I could appreciate it. There you go. You'd be reading Young Folks along with everybody else. Yeah. All right. Hey, Boogan. Meowgan. McGann. Hey, McGann. 
That's not my name, asshole. <laughs> Just say, hey, Megan, please. Please free me from this fucking prison. Hey, Megan. Yar. The Treasure Island. Or The Mutiny of the Hispaniola. Or The Sea Cook. A book for boys. <laughs> Good or bad? Yar. Well, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh... <laughs> it's good it's it's fun it's a it's just a, a fun high seas pirate adventure it's not really hurting anyone it, at no point do they fight off savages so that's a plus it doesn't have that issue in it savages savages <laughs> believe in human Thank you. savages and actually savages. i completely even forgot to touch on the fact that they explicitly state in the book that Silver's wife is not white. She is a woman of color, although they don't... I think they, they may specify that she's African. I don't remember now. That was a big deal because that was not a thing that was done then. Interracial marriage. So that's also okay, kind Bertha. of interesting. Bertha had already happened. Well, but it's she, she was already up in that attic. Okay, what's your point? Married. Well, yeah, but they don't explicitly say that. That's something that people have intuited over time. Mm. Stevenson explicitly says this is Silver and he mentions his wife and she's not a white lady. But, uh, yeah, nah, it's, it's just, like, it's pirates, man. It's one of those things where, okay, why do people keep remaking this bazillions of times? As we've said on this show before, it, the thing must have merit. If it's managed to stick along for so long and be redone so many times, there must be a call for it. Yards in the public domain. <laughs> we can pillage it. <laughs> it be in the public domain, right for the looting. Yeah, right next to the Frankenstein. And all the rest. Okay, then. Maybe there is no critical merit in Treasure Island. Snow and White. And people just take it because it's free. Cinderella. Robin Hood. <laughs> You've made your point. Rumble and now that, that will about do it for this episode of Oh No Lit Class. We're back, baby. I hope you enjoyed it. And if, if you did, spread the word. Tell everyone about us. Tell... Your friends, your family, your doctor daddy, your pirate daddy, and various other seafaring compatriots. Hey, May. Yeah? Here's the thing, though. Or here's the thing, though. I, I said we're done, but sure. You know, the armhole or handhole for Miss Piggy is really wide. Yeah? You need something that grips a bit better. Okay, but the mouth doesn't go anywhere. Oh, well, it goes up and down. Yeah, but there's not like a, there's not a thing. It, it's, you know. Well, I'm going to have the puppeteer hold it. They're going to be holding, like, the very tip. You realize that, right? Oh, jerk me off. It's pig's mouth. <laughs> We're back, baby! Now <laughs> tell him. Jerk me off with the pig's mouth. And I'm going to put an apple in my mouth. <laughs> oh, no, holy class. After all these nights, I've been hanging out in caskets full of apples. You know what? Maybe don't tell anyone about this podcast. Maybe keep it to yourself. Make it your own horrible, dirty secret. Ham and apples, they go together beautifully. <laughs> and if you want to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, uh, tumble us on Tumblr, give us money on Patreon, or buy things in our store, or listen to episodes, you can do all of those things by going to onolitclass.com. Now, Megan, here's the thing. Oh, Jesus. I, I know, according to the Torah here, pig is a dirty animal, but is a puppet of a pig a dirty animal? Because it's really not an animal. No! You just answered the question. It's not an animal. It's it's felt. So this would be kosher. Yes, it would be kosher. God. Sweet. Until next time, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye! Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ? What if peg leg, oh, God. but dildo? 
Why? But dildo. Like, but di- what if peg like but dildo? I guess there's a there's a pegging joke in there somewhere. That's how he does the old gym? No! 